Welcome back, my friends, to the AA Recovery Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This episode features my interview with Kirkland V., whom I met shortly after he came into the program over 17 years ago. We attended some of the same men's meetings throughout the years, but as is often the case in a city the size of Houston, our meetings diverged and we saw each other only occasionally. But earlier this year, Kirkland and I spent time together at a men's AA retreat and caught up with each other. As we revisited his story of early sobriety, it occurred to me that his first weeks and months of AA set a firm foundation for a strong program. Like many of us, Kirkland's family of origin was a difficult place to grow up. Alcoholism was rife and the cause of constant stress and chaos. Racked with fear and isolation, he inevitably turned to alcohol and marijuana for solace. It didn't take long for the disease of alcoholism to take hold and thrive. Kirkland's subsequent use and abuse of alcohol and grass throughout his high school and college years affected every area of his life. By the time he was in his mid-twenties and early thirties, he was gradually losing his ability to be a functional alcoholic. Despair from that realization, plus periodic bouts with depression and suicidal ideation, finally overwhelmed him. His moment of clarity and divine intervention appeared in the form of memories of his late grandmother and her words of wisdom to him earlier in his life. He reached out to a friend who brought him to his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Seeing former friends and business colleagues in the rooms did much to bolster Kirkland's early commitment to sobriety. He quickly found a sponsor, and by three months he'd already completed his fourth step. He finished up with his steps by the end of his first year and continued active involvement in meetings and in the fellowship. With amends to his parents made along the way, Kirkland discovered the freedom and peace that accompanies the willingness to do the work. To this day, and certainly in the interview, he exudes a quiet confidence and enthusiasm for the program. Kirkland's story is one I think you'll enjoy listening to. It speaks to the gifts of hope and redemption available to all who are willing to embrace the AA way of life. So, please enjoy the next 65 minutes with my friend and AA brother, Kirkland V. My name is Kirkland, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Kirkland. Thanks Hi. for being here today. I really do appreciate it. Sure. In fact, we just came out of a really great meeting. I was so glad to see you there. You reached out to me last week after you came to this meeting, and you and I saw each other back in April at the retreat. And it was so good to see you, because I hadn't seen you in quite a number of years. And then I saw you at the retreat, and I thought, this is a guy I want to stay in touch with, and certainly when it comes to doing the interview, somebody who, uh, whose story I really wanted to know more about. And the great thing about these interviews is that I get a chance to go a little bit deeper with people about their story. So you've been sober now how long? 17 years, since February 10th, 2005. Wow, that's a long time. When you first started, did you ever think you'd be sober as long as you are right now? I never really thought about it in those terms. I was just so happy to be sober. I was happy to not be drinking and to not be using. I just, uh, I stopped thinking about time probably within oh, months, if not weeks, of picking up that so far only desire chip. 
I was really truly thinking about the one day, one hour, even one minute at a time thing. Yeah, compartmentalizing that into sizable portions that we can deal with. I stopped worrying about you know the next milestone chip or the next marker of time. I was just so happy to be sober right now, today, this week, whatever. I heard your gratitude expressed in your share in the room a few minutes ago. Your sobriety date, February 10th. 2005, which was also my 36th birthday. Wow, so you got sober on your birthday. Yeah, that was my birthday present uh, to myself. Did you have it planned that at 36 I'll quit? No, I just remember getting towards about the middle of January and was really circling the drain, as we say. And um, I realized that this had to stop. I had my moment of clarity. And, uh, and then I, I thought, well, I'm about to be 36. And I, I don't think I consciously thought I would wait till I turned 36, but it just sort of worked out that way. And, I, and then I, as I got you know, into that first meeting, I realized, well, this is the best birthday present I could have. <laughs> so what was going on uh, prior to your 36th birthday that was steering you in the direction of this monumental decision to stop drinking? I couldn't have put it in, in these terms then, mm -hmm. but I heard people talk in the meetings and I read in the big book about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what I felt. That's what I felt. I was more and more of an isolation drinker and user mm -hmm. in the last oh, few years of my 20 years of drinking and using. And that's really what I felt looking back. That's, that's how I could describe it now, what I felt then. Things were starting to unravel, or were you just getting more and more isolated? More isolated, and although I was still employed, that was really only because my boss at the time was an alcoholic, um, and may still be, as far as I know. So I was able to sort of fake it, but I just couldn't outrun myself anymore. I still had enough of a conscience left that it was eating at me. So you were a functional alcoholic. You were still working? Yeah, for the most part still functional, but... Uh, I was an active alcoholic and user starting at about 5.15 p.m. every day. You never went to work drunk or would you ever drink during the business day? I never drank during the business day. Mm -hmm. I did go to work many times hungover, of course, maybe even a still a bit buzz. And there were plenty of times where I would go to work and smoke weed in the mornings just to get me over the, the hump from drinking the night before. I felt a lot more functional when I was smoking grass than I did when I was drinking. So did I. Yeah. And in fact, I often thought it sharpened me up and made me a little bit more, <laughs> you know, a little bit more amenable to doing the things at work that I didn't like to do, mm -hmm. which was practically everything. So you mentioned that you drank for 20 years until age 36. So you started drinking at 16? Yeah, maybe even sooner than 16. But I think I was uh, definitely an alcoholic and, a, and an addicted user of weed by the time I was 16. Yeah, because of course I got my driver's license and it just opened up a lot of more, more opportunities to drink and use. It seems like a lot of people I've interviewed had their first drink or drug when they were in the 13, 14-year-old range. When do you recall your first experience with alcohol and or marijuana? First time I drank, I think, was when we were little kids and we'd get a cold. My dad would make us what he called a hot toddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jack Daniels, hot water, lemon juice, and cinnamon. So that definitely counts as a drink. That's right? nasty. Yeah, that's nasty stuff. <laughs> and I remember liking it. 
What was life like in your family of origin growing up? It was really stressful and fearful for me. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult um, because everything was so uncertain. As you know, alcohol will make so many things so uncertain um, with a person or a family. Mm -hmm. And when you have a, a parent, or in my case, two parents that are alcoholics, and you're a child, you're essentially trapped. It's just uh, you never know what's next. Are either of them in recovery? No, my dad's been gone about three years. He never was in recovery. My mom is not. She's 85. I don't think she ever will be, but uh, that's okay. Was your dad using or drinking until the end? Yes. And, and both sides of my family have got a lot of alcoholism. Mm. What did you think about that when you were a kid? Did you attribute what was going on in your family to the use of alcohol, or was it just a crazy atmosphere? It was just a crazy atmosphere, and then when I got to my early 20s, I started to realize why this was. Mm -hmm. About the same time, I started to realize also that I had a problem with alcohol. Mm. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a uh, sister who's a year older, and then I have a half-brother from my mom's first marriage and a half-sister from my dad's first marriage. They're both 65. I would say that of my siblings, and we've always thought of each other as full siblings, sure. um, I would say two of them arguably drink too much. The other one doesn't really drink much at all. What was that like for you within the group of siblings? Did you get it worse or uh, did you have it better than other the others? It sounds like they're quite a bit older than you. Yeah, um, the, the half siblings are 12 years older, so they were really out of the house by the time I was six years old. And then my full sibling, she's only a year older, so she was there for most of it. Mm -hmm. I was the youngest. I mean, I remember withdrawing into myself, so to speak, from a very young age, mm -hmm. five or six years old. And I've always loved to read. And I think that's where that came from. And I uh, started playing golf, actually, with my dad when I was a little kid. But I was attracted to that because that's something you can do. Even if you're just a little kid, you can go out and hit practice golf balls for hours. Just lose yourself. So, What was your relationship like with your dad? It was... That's a hard question to answer. It was both simple and complex. It was simple because we had certain things in common, the outdoors, hunting, mm -hmm. fishing, golf. But it was complex because you really couldn't get too deep with him about anything. And yet his behavior was that of an active alcoholic who never stopped and all the damage that did to, to people. Um, financial damage is an example. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like dealing with two different people. It must have been really difficult to understand as a little kid. It was. It was It was tough. In fact, I have a picture in my car that someone gave me of me, maybe three years old, and I'm sitting next to him on the couch, and he's got a that white styrofoam cup in his mm -hmm. hand. And I, I'm, I can, in the picture, I'm looking at that cup <laughs> as, it, as though I know what that means, and I did from a very young age. So it just caused a lot of stress and uncertainty and fear and frustration and anger. Yeah, the reason I asked about that confusion was because my dad never did anything with me. I mean, uh, and, and whenever I hear guys talk about their fathers playing golf with them or going hunting or fishing or any of that kind of stuff, uh, I've always had a little bit of a sense of envy. And I always wish that my dad would do would do uh, something with me, but he never did. And uh, it was, you know, it was frustrating in a lot of ways. Um, Even when we 
did our things together, there was always that curtain of alcohol there because mm-hmm. he was drinking. He was drinking while you were doing those things. Yeah. Did that get in the way uh, when you were hunting or fishing? Did you ever have to ask him to stop, or were, were, what was that? What was that experience like with him drinking? Uh, I never had to ask him to stop, but someone told me once. In fact, he was in our program. He told me that one day he was sitting at the country club. My dad and I came through on the way to go out and play golf, uh-huh. and my dad stopped at the bar to get a drink to go. And I don't remember this. I was too young. I was maybe four or five. But this man said he saw me try to take that drink away from my dad huh. at four or five. And so I don't remember doing this, but I was already aware that this was going to change my dad, and I didn't want it to change him in the way that it was going to, and so I was trying to take it away from him, although I don't remember. Well, it sounds like a lot was revealed to you about your earlier childhood as you got sober. Were you involved in any kind of therapy along the way to uncover and discover some of that stuff? Not until I was probably 20, 21, but I was already doing what people like us often do. I was being dishonest about my own drinking and my own using. Uh So here you have this dad who for all intents and purposes, was doing stuff with you. Uh, You were gaining an interest in, do you still like to hunt and fish? I like to fish, really. You still like to play golf? Still play golf sometimes, yeah. So your dad was doing stuff with you, but at home, that interest and that involvement didn't match the man that he was at home. It matched in the sense that he was always kind of a good time Charlie. He was always a friendly guy. But he was sort of living a life that he couldn't really afford because he grew up with a lot and he was used to a lot. And he thought that club memberships and that sort of thing were all just sort of part of life without necessarily having to work for it. Mm -hmm. That they were rights, not privileges. It made it difficult because things were occasionally getting very tight financially and stressful. But yet, outwardly, everything looked fine. I mean, we lived in a nice house. Drawing the distinction between your dad as the guy you were doing stuff with and your dad as the guy at home, what kind of emotional relationship did you have with your parents growing up? Well, um, I didn't really have too much of one, I don't think. I think I felt a little bit safer about expressing emotions, at least for a while, with my mom. But then she would be unpredictable because of her drinking. And I wasn't quite sure who was going to be there. So then that stopped. Mm -hmm. And I was never really that willing to share emotionally with my dad because he just couldn't go there. Uh, He was, let's see, he was a Marine in World War II in the Pacific. And so probably, I don't know, 20% of the guys that he went to school with as a kid in Houston were dead before they were 21. And he saw some things in the Pacific that you can't unsee. And then his brother, who I was named after, drowned when his brother was 28. My dad was about 34, 35. I wasn't around yet, due directly mm-hmm. to alcohol. And before all that, um, his parents were both alcoholics. I won't say it was an arranged marriage, but they definitely were people from the same social circle that got married, even if they didn't necessarily have too much in common. So mm-hmm. by the time he was, you know, 35 years old, I think he was fully unformed, let's say, emotionally. And he just wasn't going to change much unless he was willing to work on it and start digging into it, which I don't think he ever did. 
when you talked about liking to read and were you comfortable being on your own and, and being away from other people? Did you seek that out? Yes, because that that was the safest feeling thing um, as a kid. In what way? Well, um, I guess it eliminated some of that uncertainty and some of that fear, or at least I could close myself off from it. When do you recall first drinking or using grass on your own accord? I think I was 14 the first time I drank with a kid that lived one street over, and we drank a few beers in the backyard one night. Mm -hmm. And then the first time I smoked weed, I was a freshman in high school, and I was curious to see what all this talk about weed was. So I actually got some on my own (laughs) and rolled a joint that I realized now had not nearly enough (laughs) weed in it. It was 85% paper. Yeah, it didn't really do much. And then the second time I smoked it was with someone else who had a bong, and then it then it yeah. worked. <laughs> what were your first experiences with the with the beer like? Did you get drunk? Did you get sick? Yeah, I got pretty buzzed. I don't think I got sick that first time, though. A little bit rough, but not sick. Now, one night, it was my very first high school party. I was a freshman in high school, and I went to a party, and I got so drunk that I stumbled out of the party, passed out in some lady's front yard. The cops came and picked me up, took me downtown, and then it took me to a, oh, uh, it's basically a juvenile hall. And my brother came and got me. By now, it's like 3 or 4 in the morning. And I'm 15, he's 27, and I'm thinking, I'm dead. My life's over. My parents are going <laughs> to kill me. And he picked me up, and I said that. I said, I think Mom and Dad are going to kill me. He said, no, nah, I wouldn't worry about it. They know you've been pretty scared by all this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much. You know, they could have charged me with public intoxication. I mean, clearly I was drunk and passed out, but I was this stupid 15-year-old kid. And I think they just realized, okay, it's just not worth the the time, the paperwork. And what didn't happen was what was very telling. Mm -hmm. I didn't get in any sort of trouble. I think my mom said something like, how was your night last night? When I finally woke up the next day at noon and I said, not so good. And that was it. Did you black out or did you remember the night clearly? Mostly. I remember just before I stumbled out of the party. Mm-hmm. And then I remember when the lady who lived in the house, who was very nice, was trying to wake me up and asking me if she should call my parents. I think I said something like, no, I'll be fine. Just let me, <laughs> just let me sleep <laughs> in your front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when she called the police, I guess. Huh? She, I don't think she had a choice. Yeah. So when it comes to marijuana, what was your experience like with that? Well, like I said, that first time was nothing. Then the second time is when it really affected me. And I liked it because it um, it took away some of that stress and that fear that I always seemed to feel. It just made me mellow. I pretty quickly fell in with a, a group of guys and some girls that liked to smoke. Uh-huh. So. And that was when you were a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. How did that play out over your years in high school with the, with the crowd that you were hanging with and your experience in high school when it came to academics or other things? I always enjoyed school, so I usually did pretty well. Now, where the booze and the, and the weed especially affected me was that I never really was that interested in math and science. I am now, but I wasn't then. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of gave in, looking back now, I realize I gave in to the fear that, oh, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm just going to concentrate on what I'm good at, which is reading and writing and I guess the liberal arts, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I think I had that kind of uh, inferiority complex due, I'm sure, to the situation growing up in my house. Yeah. 
because you know when you're a little kid and your parents go away so to speak every day starting at 5 p.m it must be your fault right there must be something wrong with you and i think that's where all that sort of i can't do what i'm not good at and what seems kind of scary so i'm not even going to try kind of thinking came from in what ways did your parents try and encourage you along the way well they saw that i had an aptitude for for reading and writing and language and they encouraged that and they liked, I guess, that I liked to be outdoors, mm -hmm. and they encouraged that. Yeah. But um, as far as the other subjects that I had trouble with, I mean, I could muddle through and get a C usually. They didn't really encourage me there. I don't think they were just, I don't think they were too worried about it. Yeah. And I sure wasn't going to bring it up, so. And my parents were not, were, were not involved at all in my schoolwork unless there was something wrong and I was always the class clown so I got into trouble a lot and that was the only interaction my uh, my parents had with the school was coming to get me when I was in trouble yeah it sounds to me like you were able to get through high school without too much trouble huh yeah I did all right I mean I look back now and realize what a shame I could have I could have been one of those you know straight-a students without really anything more than just a little bit of extra effort, not even extra effort, just a little bit of effort. And I did well in college too. I, mean, I think I had a B plus average, but it could easily have been a, an A. It was just that, that thinking, that fear, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I can't try this because I may fail, therefore I'm not going to try. So were you functioning while you were drinking and smoking in high school and then in college, or did you separate the two? I was mostly functioning. I was pretty good in high school and still okay in college about keeping the drinking and the smoking to the weekends. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was 31, I went back to, to school, to law school, hmm. and I was not good about keeping all that separate. I mean, I was 31 and allegedly a young adult, but I was acting like a fool. And I think the only reason I was able to graduate from law school is that I write well and that helped a lot, uh -huh. but uh, that was just sort of a wasted opportunity. Not wasted. I mean, I learned a lot, and my education there helps me in what I do now, and I got my degree. So, But I just look back now, and I think I didn't really do right by myself at all. Yeah, I get that. I think that's the case for a lot of us alcoholics is our great potential is never implemented nor realized yeah. along the way. What were the years like between, let's say, your latter years in college and the time that you went to law school? That sounds like about an eight to ten year period. Yeah. I was a teacher before I got into the oil business mm -hmm. for four years. And my first teaching job was in Guadalajara, Mexico, teaching English at the University of Guadalajara. I was a good teacher there, but I could have been a better teacher um, because I was drinking and smoking a lot and hanging out as we do with the other people that drank and smoked a lot in Guadalajara. And then I moved back here and taught school for a couple of years and quickly fell in with a crowd that drank and partied a lot, as we do, we gravitate towards them. Mm -hmm. How did hanging with these people manifest itself down in Guadalajara and then when you were back here? It was funny, there's a cultural distinction in Mexico. It's okay to drink until it's coming out of your ears. But to smoke weed was at least, you know, 25 years ago seen as sort of a lower class thing. And it's interesting because here in the States, smoking weed is something actually a lot of, you know, upper middle to upper class people do. A lot of more educated people do it. What kind of consequences, if any, do you recall 
during the years that you were doing your drinking and your smoking with the groups either down in Mexico or back here? Well, I somehow did not ever have any legal criminal consequences. Mm. I never got into a wreck, which is amazing. Never hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. What the consequences were I see now where I was just holding myself back from developing emotionally, psychologically, professionally. Where did you leap off? When did your development kind of stop in deference to the drugs and alcohol? Oh, well, that probably started back when I was a teenager because I was starting to drink and use a lot when I was, by the time I was 16. From what I think I've learned, a young brain and a young psyche, so to speak, can really be affected yeah. um, when we're putting a lot of poison in our bodies at such a young age, particularly. Yeah, that's because your wiring is still forming. That's right. In fact, uh, different studies have shown that the human brain is still developing right up onto early 20s, 24, 26 sometimes. Yeah. So when we talk about our emotional and psychological development halting when we were drinking or whatever at a certain age. Oh, yeah. I think I was, as far as my neurological development, I think I was carrying around a 10-pound weight on my brain. I did some stupid, embarrassing mm -hmm. things, but nothing that resulted in anybody being hurt, not physically hurt, not myself. Tell me about your relationships when you were in those years that you were actively drinking and smoking, your relationships with other people. Well, looking back, I realized that they were starting again pretty young, at 15, 16, they were more and more compartmentalized. Okay, I had my drinking and smoking friends, and then I had my friends that didn't drink or smoke, or at least not nearly as much as we did. And, um, and then as time went by, I didn't even want to spend time with my friends that didn't drink or smoke. And I also noticed that I was gravitating as a young adult towards my friend's parents, uh, the parents of my friends, I should say, that drank a lot, because hmm. it was more comfortable to be around them. And there were plenty of them and also gravitating at family parties and gatherings more towards the relatives that drank a lot because there was plenty of them also. Mm -hmm. So if I'm answering the question right, basically my friend groups went from, I guess, more or less normal to more compartmentalized to then limited basically either friends or relatives to people that drank a lot and or used. So were you an isolated drinker or a social drinker? Did you have to be in a social setting to really want to drink and smoke? I didn't have to be. I preferred it. But the last few years, if there was no one else to drink or use with, that didn't stop me. Mm -hmm. and, and plus, I was increasingly unhappy. I just didn't want to be around anybody else. What did you attribute that unhappiness to? That's a good question. I guess, it's, um, I guess it was my conscience. Maybe uh, my inner voice or my, my God consciousness, such as it was then, because I just, you know, I knew I was doing the wrong thing. I mean, I knew that I was just not living right. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing right by myself. What kind of connection did you see between that and the drinking and the using of drugs? Well, I was trying to blot out that voice, uh -huh. I think. You know, the louder it got, the more I drank and used to try to drown it out. Mm. And so it was kind of a hopeless battle, right? I mean, I know I'm doing wrong. My conscience is telling me I'm doing wrong, so, so I don't have to listen to my conscience. I drink more and I smoke more. Sounds like the message of if, maybe if I stopped drinking and smoking, my life would improve. doesn't get to enter that picture at all, does it? Mm-mm. Because I'd gotten to the point where I felt like I couldn't stop. Like a lot of alcohol, I guess like all of us, 
I was so full of fear. Mm. You know, I just couldn't imagine having to face my fear. Maybe I couldn't have put it in those terms then, but that's really what it was about. I, I think on some level I knew if I stopped drinking and I stopped using, I was going to have to deal with some some stuff that I just didn't want to deal with. When you talk about the drugs, was there more than just marijuana involved? Mostly marijuana. I did my share of coke. Um, ate LSD, I think, three times with close friends. And then, let's see, towards the very end, I actually tried meth a couple of times. Hmm right before I got sober. And I'm glad that whatever conscience or something inside me I had left told me, no, don't ever touch that stuff again, because that stuff is just evil. My experiences with Coke and other pills, and, and I never did any in, intravenous drugs, but those sufficiently scared me that I just kind of stuck with grass. Uh, and mm. cocaine always seemed too expensive for the amount of buzz that you got. So I never really cared for cocaine. Yeah, I never never stuck a needle in my arm, and Coke was expensive, but I had friends that had plenty of money, and sometimes I'd have enough money to get some. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I agree, it wasn't really worth the return you got from it. Yeah, I remember once when I was there, later on it seemed kind of ridiculous, I was there to buy some grass from a guy with a couple of my friends, and he had just taken some, uh, I think he had just shot up with something, and I remember us walking out thinking, gosh, what a loser, <laughs> you know, as we're there to buy drugs. Yeah, yeah. So. isn't that something? So you didn't see any kind of real connection in there between your feelings of unhappiness and the using of the pot and the drinking. One thing I've learned about myself in sobriety is that I've tried to live a life which is impossible of ignoring or, or avoiding pain. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the way I want to live. If I try to live my life in such a way that I'm avoiding unpleasantness and pain, mm -hmm. then I'm also precluding myself from feeling great joy. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to make myself emotionally neutered, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I get that. And I don't want that. Have you ever had any issues or problems with mental health issues like uh, depression or anxiety? or? Yes, depression starting when I was, I think, 20, 21. Mm -hmm. I had to drop out of school because I was just overwrought, mm -hmm. depressed, mm -hmm. exhausted, and went to a psychiatrist, but I lied to him and didn't tell him that I was drinking and smoking as much as I was. Mm -hmm. And then I got through that, and then it happened again in law school, and same thing. I was telling this psychiatrist uh, part of the truth, mm -hmm. but not the whole truth. Mm -hmm. And she gave me anti-depression pills, which I took for about, I wanna say off and on for about three or four years, and then I started again about 10 or 11 years ago, took them for a couple of years, and then I said no more, and I think I got off of them nine or 10 years ago, because I just realized that I was getting to that point where I was not up or down, emotionally neutered, and I didn't want that. That is the blessing and the curse of most uh, antidepressants. I've been on, as my listeners will know, I've been on antidepressants for the better part of 30 years, and uh, the blessing is that your lows are not as low if the, if the depression medication is working correctly, it brings up the lows, but it also dampens the highs. So, so times when I'm thinking to myself, I should be a little bit more elated or euphoric about this, I'm not. That's the antidepressant. And times when I'm thinking, God, I'd be feeling a lot worse if it weren't for it. So, you know, it's kind of a balancing act along the way. But yeah. certainly when people are drinking, in addition to taking antidepressants, it's almost like they kind of cancel each other out. What was your experience using while on your antidepressants. That, what you just described, that first go around when I was taking them in law school, um, I was still drinking and using quite a bit. And then later, the second time I took them was starting around 20, 
10, I guess. And at that point I'd been sober for five years and took him for about two years. But that second go around is when I realized, okay, I'm keeping myself from the highs, but I think I can handle the lows when they happen now that I know why I've had this depression to begin with, which in my case was the drinking and the using. I get that. So you got through your 20s. You know, it sounds to me like nothing major bad happened during that time. What made you decide to go to law school? Because I've always liked history Uh and politics. And that's pretty much what law is. It's a study of history. And I love the language aspect of it, the words, the, you know, how uh, good writing and good speaking can be persuasive in a legal argument or the explanation of a legal principle. So, I, so it was about edification of reading and history and everything else, as opposed to you wanted to become a lawyer. Yeah. And it also helps you articulate. Yeah. And it makes you, helps you speak more clearly and write more clearly and analyze perhaps more clearly. But I was not too far into law school when I started to realize, well, I don't know if I want to be a practicing lawyer, mm-hmm. which is okay because a lot of people get their law degree and they don't practice mm-hmm. law. So I became one of them. You mentioned earlier that as you went into law school, you started with a different crowd of people in law school, or were you still hanging with people who were friends all along? It was a different crowd because I was in a new city for me, San Antonio, and I didn't know anybody there. Mm -hmm. But as alcoholics and addicts do, I quickly found who the, uh, the hard partiers were. So you found the hard partiers and began hard partying. I did. (laughs) What did that look like? And for how many years did that continue? Well, law school was three years. I started there in the fall of 2000. So I was done in 2003 and then went on for another couple of years before I got sober in early 2005. What was going on in the last year or two of your drinking and using? Very little. I was living what I call a pretty pitiful fraction of a life. I was working in Hondo, Texas, which is an hour and a half west of San Antonio, and living in an even smaller town a little bit further west from there. Mm -hmm. And I think basically I just wanted to hide. You know, I was telling myself and others I was trying out the small town life for a while. And maybe I was, but all I really did was I'd get off work and then go drink and use. So you didn't want to come back to Houston at that point? Not at that point, but then as I got towards the very end of my drinking, I realized I need to get back to Houston. I need to get back to family and friends and get out of that environment. That must have been a real tough environment to stay sober in. Yeah, I mean, it was just the only people I really knew were people like me. When I wasn't around them, I was just isolated. There just wasn't much to do out there. There weren't many people. wasn't anything going on. Yeah, I was curious about that. What does partying like you did in the big city look like in a place like Honda or even a smaller town? Oh, man, people would start drinking beer at, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning on weekends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I was doing a lot of title research for my boss mm-hmm. during the day in the courthouse, the Medina County Courthouse, and got to be friends with the girl that was working for a title company. Mm. And what started out as us getting together to drink beer and smoke at night became us getting together at lunchtime to smoke. You know, that last year of my drinking and using was more and more pitiful, really. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, Check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. 
It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. What did that trajectory look like? I mean, it sounds like it's a downward slope going on here. Was it a, a steady decline, or did you drop off various cliffs along the way? What did that look like? It was pretty steady, I would guess. It was sort of like the light going out gradually. Yeah. Because I look back at that time now, and I think, okay, that year that I lived in that small town, that last year before I got sober, um, it just was more and more pitiful. You know, I drank more, I smoked more, I did less of the things that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Friends that would invite me to, to meet them somewhere for a weekend, I'd more and more often find an excuse not to go. Mm-hmm. I just realized I was shutting my own life down, terribly depressed and unhappy, thinking about dying, wanting to die, wanting to go to sleep and not wake up, but afraid to commit suicide. You know, classic, I didn't want to live, but I was afraid to die. That's where I was. So you had the suicidal ideations, but just never followed. Never tried. Yeah. I think that's, that is not an uncommon theme for most alcoholics. So all this is going on while you're out there, you're isolated. The drinking and the grass and whatever else you were doing wasn't doing its job anymore for you? Not anymore. I mean, I realized it wasn't fixing me. It had never fixed me, but I needed it now because I was a true alcoholic. When did you first admit that to yourself? (laughs) My 21st birthday. I had dinner with my parents here in town, and then I was driving down to Galveston to meet some friends at someone's beach house, and I was maybe halfway down to Galveston looking forward to stopping at a convenience store on the seawall and being able to legally buy beer. Uh And I I realized I couldn't wait to get down there and get hammered with my friends. And I realized, Kirkland, you're an alcoholic. You just want to go down there and get drunk. But then my next thought was what's so crazy. I thought to my, and I remember this, I thought to myself, okay, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but I just admitted that I'm an alcoholic. And that's the hard part. So now that I've admitted it, whenever I want to quit or need to quit, I'll be able to. Hmm. So you admit it and then you put that admission in your hip pocket to be used as needed. To be used as needed, and I needed it a lot sooner than 15 years later, but that's when I finally quit, exactly 15 years later, on my 36th birthday. So the admission comes 15 years before doing something about it. Don't you love the way I think? (laughs) (laughs) There's a pattern to it, though, isn't there? Yeah. There's a pattern to it. So you've acknowledged you're an alcoholic. Things are going down the tubes relatively quickly. What did the last part of that look like for you before you finally made the decision to get some help? Well, I'd gotten to that point that I mentioned earlier, describing it as the four horsemen, although I didn't know the term then. Mm -hmm. But I remember one night, it was when I had my epiphany, as we call it, my moment of clarity. I was sitting in my little kitchen next to my kitchen table, And uh, I felt like there was no friendly direction for me to turn in, not because I'd alienated all my friends and family. They didn't really know much about what my life was like because I'd kept them away, gone off by myself. But I just felt like there was nothing I could really do about this. I was never going to be happy again. Hmm. 
that the booze and the drugs weren't going to fix me, but I had to have them. Mm -hmm. So I just felt a desolation and an emptiness that I really wouldn't wish on anyone. It was absolutely miserable. But then my moment of clarity happened, which was I thought about my paternal grandmother, who I knew until I was nine years old. She died when I was nine. It was 1978. Mm -hmm. She was sickly and bedridden for about the last year or two of her life. So I only knew her as a walking, talking person up until about seven years of age. And then she became this scary old bedridden person. But I remember in high school finding in the attic all of her old books. And by then I'd really fallen in love with history and politics and literature and poetry and all that. And I realized we would have had a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. She and I. We had a lot in common. Anyway, that night I was sitting in my little kitchen and I had my moment of clarity. I started to think about her and I got this strange feeling that wherever she was, having been gone for 30 years at that point, she was looking at me and she was furious, like white, hot, angry. Mm. And she would have told me, you are wasting your time and your life and your gifts and you're just wasting your life. And, and I realized this has got to stop. Hmm. What a revelation. Yeah. And I, I wish I could say that I went and, you know, poured out all the beer and flushed all the weed that night. I didn't, but I knew that was it. It was ending soon. This was about mid-January. Mm-hmm. And the next few days I went to my boss and said, look, I'm sorry. This is just not working out. I've been here a year. It's just not my thing. I got to move back to town. I didn't tell him why. Yeah. I said, I got to move back to Houston and be closer to family. Mm-hmm. And it was February 10th, you know, a few weeks after that, that I picked up that desire chip. But that was my moment of clarity. I thought about my grandmother, of all things. That's amazing. Somewhere along the way, perhaps that was uh, like a spiritual awakening or a uh, spiritual turning point. To what extent did God enter that equation? I think it was. I mean, I think that that was that was a message from from God, from my higher power, sent through a memory, if you will, Mm -hmm. of a relative with whom I would have had a lot to talk about, would have had a lot in common with. That was just, there was something about thinking about her, imagining her being so angry with me that got my attention. I don't know if it would have worked if someone would have come up to me and said, you need to get God in your life or a spiritual solution to your problems. Had you thought about her much before that time? No. So this thing came out of left field. It did. It did. I mean, I hadn't really thought about her since I had been in high school and was looking through her books that day. That was a really cool moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. So there was some time between that moment of clarity and February 10th. How did you end up in AA? I was working, and this is no coincidence, for a land title research company, Mm -hmm. and they sent me to work in an office out in Rosenberg, Richmond. Richmond, Rosenberg, I should say. And there were five people working in that office, and three of the five were in AA Hmm. when I got out there. And that was no coincidence. And after I got sober, it was four out of five of us were in AA. But what happened was it was the same company I had done some work for years prior. And there was a guy working for the company years prior working again for them. 
when I got sent out to Richmond Rosenberg named Carl R. I know Carl. Carl's a good friend. And he was in there, and one day we were all leaving the office for lunch, mm -hmm. going out to our cars, and I, and I looked over at Carl, and I said, because I'd heard him talking about this years before on the phone, mm -hmm. I said, Carl, do you still go to those AA classes <laughs> or whatever those things are? <laughs> And he laughed kind of like, like you are. And uh, he said, let's go have lunch. Wow. <laughs> so we did. And he suggested I go to the Wednesday 6.30 men's meeting, which is where I picked up my desire. Wow. You've been a regular there since then, haven't you? Yeah, I moved away for about five years to Colorado and Austin. But, yeah, I still consider that my home group. Always will. What were your first AA meetings like? Oh, my gosh. They were so... Freeing. I felt like I'd had the chains cut off because I went to that first meeting and they said, is this anybody's first meeting? And I, you know, raised my hand and people started talking about their experience, strength and hope. Mm -hmm. And I was, I mean, it was 20 minutes into that first meeting and I realized I'm not alone anymore. These are my people. Because for me, alcoholism was a disease of isolation, not just actual isolation, but even when there were thousands of people around, I just felt so alone. Mm. So that was so liberating, so freeing, such a relief. I'll bet, especially being able to come in with a guy like Carl. With Carl, and then that first meeting, I walked in and Kirby was there. And I'd done plenty of uh, partying with Kirby, uh -huh. and I hadn't seen him in, in a while. So these were guys that you partied with at one time. Yeah, with Kirby, not with Carl. Carl I just worked with, but um, but Kirby, definitely. And it was kind of um, reassuring to see him in that first meeting. I'll bet. Because I said, how long have you been doing this? And he said, at that point, I think it had been like uh, seven or eight years. And he said, what about you? And I said, this is my first meeting. What did you think about the whole concept of AA? I mean, you're, you're a bright guy. What did you think about the big book and about the steps and all that kind of stuff? I, I guess I took to it right away. I mean, I was happy that there was a big book because if it's, if it's in a book, that's a good start for me. <laughs> I love to read. That's great. But I also like that um, I didn't know it early, early on, but I really like that each of the steps has a principle behind it. Mm. Usually one word, sometimes two, but that makes it even simpler. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that. And I love the stories, too. I love the stories in the back of the big book. So I took to it right away. I didn't really have any trouble with, you know, wanting to read the big book or the steps or talking about it or going to meetings. I was ready. As Carl said, I was really, really low-hanging fruit. <laughs> and good for him. I'm sure that bringing you in was just another one of those great things that helps us stay sober is to be of service to others and help them find sobriety. And, and certainly the same, the same for Kirby. How about sponsorship? Did you get a sponsor right away? I did. He kept wanting me to move into a halfway house, and I didn't want to do that. I had a job, and I, didn't, I just didn't want to move into a halfway house, and so I, I wasn't very brave about it. I said, I, I have to resign as your sponsee. I couldn't bring myself to say, I don't want to work with you. I just said, I need to work with somebody else, which he, he kind of laughed about. We still laugh about it. And then I found another sponsor, and... My first experience was, was fine. I mean, like I said, I was, I was so ready. I was willing to do 
what I needed to do. Now today's meeting was about the fourth step and writing that first fourth step and doing the first fifth step were not that fun, but I knew I needed to do it and I was so happy that I did. How long had you been in the program by the first fourth step? Not too long. I mean, it was, I'm pretty sure it was no later than maybe mid-March or April. I mean, I hadn't been in for more than a month or so by the time I got to that fourth and fifth step. How'd you feel when you were done with it? Free. Did you feel like you'd gotten everything? Yeah. And what's it been like since? Have you had to do additional fourth steps along the way? I have, but they haven't been that long. It's still uncomfortable, like I mentioned in the meeting, for me to look at that final column, what's my part, but that's okay. For me, discomfort usually equals some recovery. Yeah. When you look back at your first year, it sounds to me, if you were doing your fourth step by the second month in, uh, completing the rest of the, the steps, how long did that take? And at what point did you feel like you might be ready to sponsor other people? Let me think about this. Yeah, I did my fourth and fifth step a month or so in, and I'm pretty sure I was done with the steps the first time after oh, six or seven months. I mean, we weren't speeding through it, but we were pretty regular. I mean, he was giving me assignments to read, and I read them, mm -hmm. and we'd get together and talk about it in person or on the phone. And I was, I wanted it. Yeah, and you were going to a lot of meetings at that time? Yeah, I mean, they told me to do 90 meetings in 90 days, and I think I did probably, you know, 120 meetings <laughs> in 90 days. That's great. That's enthusiasm. Yeah, it was, or... Desperation. Desperation. <laughs> yeah, you're right about yeah. that. So I think the first time I tried to sponsor someone, I'd been sober for a little more than a year. What was that experience like? Not to be flippant, it was sobering because he, he was a very mixed up person, as I was. And um, the last time I heard from him, he said he'd slid his wrist, and I don't know if he'd done it or not, and I didn't know what to do. I said, wrap something around your wrist, anything, shirt, a rag, mm -hmm. a sock, something. And, and, I, and I was going to try to get him somewhere mm -hmm. or, or, or pick him mm -hmm. up or meet him, whatever, but he, he got off the phone. I never, never heard back from him. Never seen him again? Mm-mm. I can't even remember his name. I've tried to think about that. I can't remember his name. That's tough. I don't know if, if he if he did it or not. How long did you work with him? Oh gosh, maybe two months. He got to the third step. We did that, and then he stalled on the fourth, mm -hmm. as we tend to do. And then he got to where he was. He said working on his fourth step, and that's where it ended. Yeah, the accountability in the early stages of sponsoring is just so important. Did he stay in good contact or was he a kind of a sporadic sponsee? Up until that night, he was pretty regular. I don't know what happened. Like I say, I don't ever know what happened to him. Yeah, I've, I've, I've lost, early on, I lost quite a number of different guys. And if I had to point to one place within their program, it was almost always around the fourth and fifth step. Yeah, there's something about looking at all that stuff that's just not... That's scary as hell. It, it is. It is scary. And I had another, I think my next sponsee, 
he did not commit suicide. I know for a fact he didn't, but he called me one night. He said he was driving around in his Jeep with a shotgun and his dog. Whoa. I remember saying, Steve, you, uh, you know, there's lots of reasons why you don't want to do this, but do you really want someone to find you like this? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot yourself, find, have someone find you with your body mangled, your poor dog covered with blood and guts in your car? That's not the only thing I said, of course, but I mean, those first two people I tried to sponsor were just a good example of just how serious this disease is. That sounds really disturbing, though. I mean, to be a year sober and have to hear that kind of stuff or a few years sober and having to have a guy call you who's got a shotgun ready to blow his brains out. What was your first response? I mean, I told both of them that I had been suicidal. Mm -hmm. I know that. You know, I just tried to say without sounding like I was speaking in cliches or platitudes, you know, the world's a better place with you in it. And this will not fix you. It will destroy a lot of people. It's not going to fix you. But it was hard. I mean, it, you know, here I was not that long sober myself, but maybe in some way that's what I, I needed to drive home the point that maybe I didn't even need driven home, that this is a disease that wants to kill us. How did your sponsor process that with you? Was it something you talked with him about or shared in meetings and that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I talked to my sponsor about it a lot, and he... I mean, it was somewhere between sort of shrug your shoulders and show some empathy, because there's really not much else we can do. And then someone said something to me... Carl, I guess. He said, look, that's a really tough thing, but you have to remember that this disease is a killer and you're not responsible for them not getting sober. You're not responsible for them getting sober. You're just carrying the message. And if someone's in that bad a place, you're not responsible for that either. Don't, you know, don't beat yourself up for it. All we can do is take it as a reminder to keep working a program ourselves and, of course, to be available to help if they want it. Yeah, and, and being able to acknowledge the fact that we sponsor other people to keep ourselves sober and to teach them how to sponsor other people. But it's hard not to want to get involved. In my case, feeling like I was responsible for other people's actions a lot of my life, to just let mm -hmm. see somebody who's going down the tubes and not want to reach out and grab them, but you know that if you grab them, they're going to pull you down with them. That was hard for me, especially, I understand what you're saying because of where and how I grew up. So, yeah, you do want to reach out and, and feel what they're feeling, so to speak. You want to rescue them. But you're right, they will pull you down. So tell me about some of the success stories amongst your guys you've sponsored and, and work that you've done over the years in AA. You know, I have never been able to sponsor someone all the way through the 12 steps. They always go away. But yet I know that some of these guys have stayed sober. And if that's what it took for them to work with me for two or three steps or four, uh -huh. fine. If they needed to work with someone else or they weren't ready to get sober yet, whatever. As long as they're, you know, I'm just happy for them. That's great when you see them too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's great to see a person who came in looking like I did, and now they've got that light around their eyes. That's where I see it, in their eyes and around their face. They get that kind of life energy back. So I've never 
personally gotten anybody all the way through the steps. They just, for whatever reason, maybe I'm not as um, strict about it, but my take is to them, or my, my, what I say to them is, this is going to work if you work it. You know, I'm not going to chase you. If you want this, then, you know, I'm available. Well, and the fact that they're still sober means something worked for them. Something, yeah. And maybe you just kind of launched their boat and others have helped uh, help them along the way. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I'm just happy for people when they get sober. Have you had the opportunity to talk to some of these guys later on down the road from when you first sponsored them to find out why they decided to not go through the rest of the steps with you? Sort of. The guy that was driving around with his uh -huh. dog and the shotgun, I mean, we, we talked a few times after that, um, or after he went away, so to speak. Mm -hmm. He reminded me that once he had called me and he wanted to talk about sobriety before I'd actually started sponsoring him. And I said, well, have you been drinking? And Because he, he sounded like he had. And he said, yeah, I drank last night. I've been drinking today. I said, well, you're not quite ready to get sober yet. I'm happy to talk to you. But if you've been drinking, you're not really ready for this. Just call me back when you're, when you're ready to hmm. talk about this. And he said he really appreciated that about me. And then he, sure enough, called me back whenever it was, two days or so later, and we started working the steps until he went away. But um, when we saw him, when I saw him years later, he was playing on, on stage. He was a really good, still is a really good guitarist here in Houston. He's consistently voted one of the best wow. guitarists in town. And he, uh, I'm not really answering your question, but, but what he said was he just, he just wasn't quite ready to, to, do this, to do the step work. I get that. I've had all different types myself, you know, guys that I've, who've called me their sponsor in name only, and I, I acknowledge the fact that if, if that's how a man needs to work his program to be able to have somebody who he can call when he needs to, especially guys with more, you know, considerable time in the program who have actually worked the steps. That's, that's fine with me. But I find that certainly the, the vast majority who don't make it and who I who end up not making it after I've sponsored them are men who've stopped at a particular step and refer, refuse to go forward. And my attitude is, if you want to work this particular thing, I'll, I'm there for you, but don't expect for me to entertain all the other things you want to talk about when you and I both know you need to be doing this next thing. In other words, yeah, I want to call up, I want to call you Howard and talk about my wife and my kids and my job and everything that I hate. And I'm saying, have you started that fourth step? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. 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 So it's just interesting that you mentioned that about guys still being sober, even though you didn't end up taking through the steps. You know about those guys are still around. They're staying sober. You didn't get drunk. Success. Success. I don't know if they did, and I hope not. In fact, there's one guy I was recently sponsoring him in the last couple of months, but I finally said, look, you're just not doing anything. You haven't done anything, and you never got started. And he told me that he'd gone through all the steps with the previous sponsor, and he hadn't. So that wasn't a good start right there. Pretty challenging. But he's still sober, as far as I know. So you never got married along the way? No, and I think that was probably a good thing. Not that I'm against it or not that I'm hoping it doesn't happen now. If it happens, great. But, I mean, I, I would have been pretty hard to, to live with when I was an active alcoholic. So that was a conscious decision based on the fact that you were alcoholic 
or were there other factors that entered into it? Well, mostly just because I was an active alcoholic, and I think on some level I knew I don't, I think that was a God thing, honestly. But in my case, I would have prayed on some nice, sweet girl, like I, you know, like I dated this really nice, sweet girl in, in Mexico, and she wanted to get married, and I thought about it, but then I realized I'm not ready to get married. I'm not nearly mature enough. I'm still a drunk. I'm just going to hurt a really bad, or excuse me, I'm going to hurt badly a really good person. And I did hurt her. I mean, I, I hurt her just because I said, I can't do this and I don't, I don't want to see you anymore. But it would have been a lot worse if we'd gotten married and I would have just made a mess of things. Anyway, I contacted her years later and I cleaned it up and that's all for the good now. So you're not, you're, that was like an eighth and ninth step that you, you did, a formal amend. It wasn't a formal amends. I actually contacted her about five years before I got sober. I called her. I said, look, Myra, I'm really sorry about what I did. And I am, at the time I was in therapy, and I said, and, you know, I have an alcohol problem. I actually wow. said that to her. She said, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> that was no surprise. But I said, I'm really sorry. That's not who I uh-huh. hope I am. And I was immature, and I was wrong, and I'm just really sorry. And I remember talking about her with my uh, sponsor when I was doing my first four-step. And I said, do I need to put her on there? I've already talked to her about this and, and apologize and all that. He said, no, that's fine. You already made your amends. You just did it before you got sober. Looking back over the time that you've been sober now, 17 years, can you think of any milestones along the way that occurred that you were particularly glad that you were sober when they happened? Or are there other events or things that happened along the way that you can directly attribute them to your sobriety and your being in AA? Yeah, I think I can use the same example for both parts of that question uh-huh. when I remember uh, I remember being maybe two weeks sober sitting mm-hmm. in a meeting and a guy talked about his father getting sick and beginning his final spiral mm-hmm. and about how he had to literally carry his dad to the bathroom and was just just watching a very old person die I mean it's a natural thing but it's hard and I remember sitting there thinking I wonder if I can do that mm. and then it happened um, you know 15 years later, I went through it and I was able to be present Mm -hmm. emotionally and physically to help him, help my mom spend more time with him before he died because of sobriety. I mean, it's that simple. If I hadn't been sober, I would not have been able. That thought that you were talking about wondering early on, will I be able to do that? And then you stick around long enough to realize that lots of people go through it and get through it. Yeah. Did that help? Yeah, because like I mentioned, that first meeting I was in is when I realized I'm not alone anymore. Okay, I can go through good things, but also bad things with other people. Mm-hmm. And when they say they're willing to be helpful, they mean it. You know, they're there for me. And sometimes that's all we want is just to know that other people are there for me, even if I don't need their help or I don't even need to talk to them. Just knowing. So you were there for your dad in his final days? Yeah, his last couple of months. And mm-hmm. it, it all went pretty quickly. Um, but it was the most difficult thing I've been through yet. It may be that bad with my mom. Who knows? I don't know yet. But um, I was there because of sobriety. I'm glad I was a good son. Yeah, that's something to be really grateful for, isn't it? I'm, I'm very grateful, yeah. And the gift that that can be to other people who are those guys with two weeks or two months or two years sitting in that room that you're in wondering whether or not they are going to be able to do that 
and or will they be able to stay sober through it? Mm -hmm. That's the gift that comes out of that. That's kind of the second part of your question. I mean, I was able to do that because of sobriety, mm -hmm. but the gift part of that is what you just talked about. It was both something I was able to do because I was sober, but it was a gift to me to do it, you know? Yeah, I get that. It's a natural thing. And being able to share it with other people. I actually shared about that once in a meeting. It just, uh, something about the topic was relevant to that. And so I talked about that for the, for the only other time until, you know, today. Yeah. It, but it was in the context of good things that have happened. Uh-huh. Because how terrible would I feel about myself if I had still been drinking and using and not be able to, not only not been able to, to help and to spend my last opportunities to spend time with him. Mm -hmm. I mean, how bad would I feel now looking back and going, what were you doing? Shut up in your apartment while he was, you know, 15 minutes away. Isn't that something? So there's the God moments that occurred in your life. Yeah. Looking at your spiritual life today, compared to earlier in sobriety, have you seen a, a difference over the years? Or what, what's that look like, your spiritual sense of self? Yes. In fact, this morning, I was thinking about that. I, I have my prayer and meditation time every morning. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the specific words in the 24-hour book, but it just reminded me that I don't need to give in to fear and despondency, I think, and anger were the, were the words, because I just really feel like whatever happens to me, it's supposed to happen. Right. I may not like it, mm -hmm. but it always turns out to be for the best. May not, as we say, been what I wanted, but it turned out to be what I needed. I don't need to worry so much anymore about whether I'm going to be okay or things are going to be okay, because really they already are. Um, it's almost like that heat mirage you see on the highway when you're going down the road. And a little shimmering. Yeah, you never quite get there, but I feel like I'm getting to that point where I'm truly not going to worry about anything anymore and truly get from my head to my heart this notion that everything's okay. That's big. Everything that's happening is supposed to, everything that didn't wasn't supposed to. That's a certain amount of enlightenment, Kirkland. It's a lot of freedom is what it is when I, when I have it. And I, I'm, I'm quicker, I'm kind of rambling off your question, but I'm quicker to recognize that and to see it when things are not going in a necessarily happy way. But then I remember, wait a minute, just because they're not going the way I would have them go doesn't mean that they're not going the way they're supposed to. Well, it's like... God, grant me the knowledge of your will for me today and being okay with it. Mm. Either way, good or bad, whatever happens, Yeah, I get that. Sounds like a really spiritually informed attitude to have on a daily basis. I seem to have it thanks to my higher power more and more. No, I still forget it. You know, I'm, I'm a human being and a drunk, but it seems like I'm in that place more often than I'm not. And I sure am grateful. Well, I'm grateful, too. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for, for us being able to reconnect. I've just really enjoyed this conversation. It's been very, very cool. Me, too. Thank you. And uh, I think this podcast is being listened to by a lot of different people in a lot of different places and of different frames of mind and different amounts of sobriety and that sort of thing. And I've yet to have one interview that hasn't touched somebody somewhere. 
Not that I'll ever know, but my attitude is if one person can be helped, then it's all worthwhile. And I'm looking forward to expanding our friendship that we've kind of had on the periphery over the years, but seeing you at that retreat was really cool. And I'm planning to go back and hoping you are too. It'd be kind of cool to spend some time with you again. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. And I, I appreciate it. I love you. And you're a a good man and somebody whose sobriety I really respect. And now I know why I respect it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Everything you've said today. I love you too. And I, I'm glad to know you. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest Kirkland for sharing his story and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to more than 85 interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 